in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you ladies, lords, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and today I'm joined by my partner in crime, John Flack. How you doing, John? I'm pretty great. How about yourself? I am excited. Why are you excited? We have a really good guest. If you remember the Mission Impossible episode, one of our most popular episodes and our first episode that we had. Yes. We brought back Meredith Gray Robson. Meredith? Hello. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm doing good. That's great. Well, in case people didn't get to know you well enough the first time, we're going to ask a few more deep personal movie questions so are you ready yep all right who's your favorite director so i think it's today it's tim burton it changes a little bit but it's today it's definitely tim burton i love tim burton as well what's your favorite tim burton film i think it's probably edward scissorhands but sometimes it's the nightmare before christmas those two just are visually the best, in my opinion. Oh. Is Nightmare Before Christmas just later in the year? Is that your favorite? I think so. Yeah, around Christmas, it's Nightmare Before Christmas. But every you know, other day of the year, it's Edward Scissorhands. And it's okay. never Planet of the Apes. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, I know uh, you enjoy newer movies thoroughly, as much as anybody I know. But I know you also like older movies. And when I say older, I mean like classic movies, like TMC kind of movies, which is fitting for the episode today. When you watch a classic movie, how does that differ from a more contemporary movie for you? Well, I think that the thing that, you know, you never leave a classic movie wanting to see more of the characters or feeling that you didn't know enough about somebody or, you know, that so many questions remains or you're you're unsatisfied with how much of, you know, that actor or this actor that you saw. Um a lot of movies now they're so caught up in things they can do, you know, with action and special effects, not that they're not great, but you end up not getting to see enough of the people you want to see sometimes. So you actually feel like they're a little better about filling in the gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And I know uh, the people at home may not know this, but uh, you're a graphic designer and art director as well as an artist. Uh, So what movie poster is your favorite in terms of an aesthetic standpoint and then perhaps a different question, or it could be the same answer from a marketing standpoint as well. So um, my favorite movie poster is probably the Vertigo poster. And I think you guys shortlisted or maybe somebody shortlisted Vertigo earlier on, Um, but it's very simplistic and it's very graphic. It's got this, orangey background with two figures on top it's sort of spiraling 
And it's actually very unsettling, but it doesn't give away any of the important points of the plot or it doesn't let you in too much on what the movie is. And I think that's really great. And it's also, you know, something that you're just walking past, you think it looks intriguing. It doesn't give you too much. It gives you just enough. And I think um, Saul Bass actually did the poster for Vertigo and he was a pretty big designer in terms of movie titles and logos of the time and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's uh, it it kind of has that. Uh, I guess the barrel of James Bond is what comes to my mind, but it's like a vortex of interlocking circles to simulate the vertigo feeling, and it has this figure uh, as a, a silhouette of a male figure and a outline drawing of a female figure falling into this spinning mm-hmm. uh, nature. Yeah, it gives so. you just enough to make you want to see it. Absolutely. It, it's a good, good choice. I, I hadn't actually taken the time to look at this poster per se, because so often DVD cover art's different than the actual poster. So. Mm-hmm. so have you seen any movies lately? Well, yeah, actually, um, recently I saw Aquaman in the theater on my birthday. It was really good. It's great if you like a movie kind of like Masters of the Universe, where it's sci-fi but it's got a little bit of sense of humor to it yeah and i think dc's learning uh slowly very slowly that people don't want serious and moody superheroes all the time so they they uh, lightened the mood a little bit this time yeah. around wouldn't you say yeah this this was not moody it was it was good so there's more levity to to the film oh yeah yeah there's a, there's a lot more of a comic book personality to this one I'm excited to hear that. So today we have the 1941's The Maltese Falcon. It grossed $967,000 domestically and 805000 in foreign. They placed third in the box office. So if those numbers sound a little bit low by today's numbers, uh, remember there's inflation. It, this is a very successful movie. Uh, the movie that placed ahead of it and number two was Sergeant York in 1941. And the movie that placed behind it is Suspicion, which I've actually seen. The IMDb rating for The Maltese Falcon is very high at 8.1. And Rotten Tomatoes critics give this a 100% fresh. And the audience likes it too. They give it a 91% fresh. So it, uh, it received three nominations for Academy Awards, including Best Picture, uh, Sydney Greenstreet got a nomination for Best Supporting Actor, and John Huston got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. One last one as we introduce it, the AFI honors love this movie. In 1998, AFI put this on its list of top 100 movies at number 23. They later revisited it in 2007, and they knocked it down to 31, but that's still a very high honor. Uh, in 2001, they put this on the 100 Greatest Thrills at number 26, and they made a top 10 mysteries genre list in 2008, and they gave this the number six movie on that. And in 2005, AFI put this at uh, number 14 on top 100 movie quotes for the stuff that dreams are made of. So this movie is well liked. Let's go and talk about what were your expectations. Meredith, had you seen this one before? What were your expectations coming into it this time? Well, so I had seen it um, a few years ago, I think, and I really vividly remember what the movie looked like but all the little details sort of floated away so I didn't remember really what happened but yeah I had seen it before 
Were you expecting to like it coming in this time? Um, I think I was expecting to like it, um, but I think I like it more than I was expecting. That's a good sign. Of, or that's a sign of a good movie. John, how about you? Was this your first go around with this one? If not, what were your expectations? Uh, it is not my first uh, viewing. The first time, and actually probably the last time, uh, was at least 15 to 20 years ago. I watched it with my dad. He's a very big Bogart fan and really likes talking about his history of film. Uh, so I, I probably watched it on like Turner Classic Movies or AMC when it used to actually be American Movie Classics before it had successful TV. Uh, I enjoyed it just because I, it created a good conversation with my dad. But honestly, I was probably a little too young to fully understand all of the how important this film really is in cinematic history. So I, I came in with relatively high expectations, but really they were surpassed in watching it. Uh, I, I, I just I just had a wonderful time. You know, I had over the years read that this is a high-ranking movie, and I had no clue what I was getting in for. I knew it was going to be something involved with a mystery, but I even thought the Maltese Falcon was a who, not a what. And so clearly my expectations were all over in the wrong place. And so I might have actually been thinking this was going to be more of an espionage kind of thing. And it's not. And I was still pleasantly surprised. It's more of a detective case. And I really enjoyed it. First go around for me uh, was really good. So I can say, uh, especially given that when it came out, it lives up to a lot of the praise. Influential, for sure. Uh, I have to remind people at this point, though, we're going to talk about the Maltese Falcon in detail and we're going to end up having spoilers as part of that. So if you haven't seen The Maltese Falcon, do yourself a big favor. Go watch the movie and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast with us. When we return from the commercial break, we're going to get into it. We have a message from Sir Sean Connery. Ladies, please calm yourselves. This is the Scottish sensation, Sean Connery. You probably know me as 007 or as People's Magazine's 1989 Sexiest Man Alive. Honestly, they call each year and they try and give it to me again and again, but I decline and tell them, give somebody else a chance to win it. When I'm not entertaining the ladies, I listen to my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. If you want to be awesome like I am, give The Retro Movie Roundtable a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. Tell movie-loving friends to listen, like the show on Facebook, Email John and Russell at RetroMovieRoundTable at Yahoo.com. I've won many awards, but the shining moment of my career was hearing John and Russell praise my acting performances on Retro Movie Roundtable. I think you'll love this show as much as the ladies love me. Sir Sean Connery. Can you believe we got this guy? No, yeah. I, I, I can't believe it at all. I, I thought he was hiding somewhere in Scotland. No, probably in an old folks' home in Scotland. <laughs> Not just his home, an old folks' home. He's, he's almost 90 years old. I'm happy he's still around. Yeah. He sounds spry. To join us today. <laughs> <laughs> Meredith, would you like to give us your plot summary? Okay. A scrolling prologue appears on the screen. It explains that the Knights Templar of Malta intended to gift a jewel-encrusted gold falcon to the King of Spain. Before it was delivered, it was taken by pirates. The fate of the Maltese Falcon remains a mystery. Our story begins in misty San Francisco with private detectives Spade and Archer. Being the only one of the two in the office, 
spade meets with someone named Mrs. Wonderley. She's from New York and is looking for her sister, who she believes to be with a dangerous man named Floyd Thursby. Shortly, we meet Spade's partner, Miles Archer. A plan is devised for Miss Wonderlay to meet Thursby and for Miles to follow him. In the first big turn of the movie, Miles is shot and killed while shadowing Thursby. Spade gets a late night call from the police informing him of Miles's murder. Spade goes to the crime scene and speaks with the police. It turns out that Miles was shot with an English Webley four-speed with only one shot used. The police catch up with Spade at his apartment. They ineffectively interrogate him while insinuating that he had something to do with Miles's death. We cut to a newspaper headline that reads, Thursby and Archer murders linked. Spade returns to his office. Miles's wife, Iva, is there. She asks Spade if he killed her husband. It's apparent that they've had an affair, but it's old news to Spade. Mrs. Wonderlay calls, and Spade heads over to her hotel. At the hotel, Miss Wonderlay explains that the story about her sister was made up and that her real name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Spade and Archer never believed her in the first place. O'Shaughnessy plays the guilty frightened act for a while, but eventually she tells him how she knows Floyd Thursby. They came to San Francisco together from Hong Kong. She felt Thursby was going to betray her. Spade agrees to help her in exchange for her remaining cash. He takes her key and says that he'll let himself in later. Back at Spade's office, Spade's assistant Effie shows in a mysterious-looking man named Joel Cairo. He's foreign, a little short, and carries a fancy cane. Mr. Cairo brings up the two murders and wants Spade's assistance in finding a misplaced ornament. He says it's a figure of a blackbird and he'll pay $5,000. Unexpectedly, Cairo pulls a gun on Spade and wants to search the office. Spade gets the gun and knocks out Cairo. While Cairo is out, Sam finds he has multiple passports and he becomes increasingly suspicious. When Cairo wakes up, he's offering he's still offering $5,000 and reveals that he's staying at the Belvedere Hotel. Spade gives Cairo the gun back in good faith, only to have it pulled on him again. Spade laughs while Cairo searches the office. On his way to meet O'Shaughnessy, Spade is followed by a boyish-looking guy. He eventually gets to her hotel, where she tells him, that she's actually not such an innocent person. She is uncomfortable to hear about Cairo and his offer. Spade and O'Shaughnessy kiss, which we almost expect to happen at this point in the movie because of her skinny eyebrows. They arrange to meet Cairo at Spade's apartment. At the apartment, Spade looks out the window and notices the boyish guy. Cairo arrives and they commence talking. O'Shaughnessy can get the blackbird in about a week. Cairo inquires about what happened to Thursby. O'Shaughnessy says only, the fat man. Spade, O'Shaughnessy, and Cairo go on to have a heated conversation and altercation, the result of which is one of the best lines in the movie. Spade tells Cairo, when you're slapped, you'll take it and you'll like it. In the midst of the uproar, the police arrive. Spade talks to them outside, but they rush in when Cairo cries for help. It appears that O'Shaughnessy has given him a bloody head. After the police divide them, Spade lies. He says that O'Shaughnessy is one of his employees. Spade goes on to reveal Cairo as an acquaintance of Thursby. The police and a dumbstruck Cairo leave. 
O'Shaughnessy proceeds to give Spade a slightly more accurate version of events. Spade spots the boyish guy out the window again. Spade goes to the Belvedere Hotel to see Cairo. Before he encounters him, the boyish guy is seen spying in the lobby. Spade approaches him and brings up Cairo and the fat man. Eventually, the hotel manager, Spade knows, tells the boyish guy to beat it. Looking a little worse for wear, Cairo shows up at the hotel desk. He'd been up all night talking to the police. Back at Spade's office again, three people have called for Sam. Miles' wife, the district attorney, and Mr. Gutman. Sam's assistant explains that Mr. Gutman left a message. I have phoned and will phone again. O'Shaughnessy is waiting in Spade's office. Someone has been in her apartment and she's afraid to go back there. Spade arranges for her to stay with his assistant, Effie. Finally, Gutman calls again and invites Spade to the place where he's staying. At a lavish hotel, we meet Gutman, AKA the fat man. The boyish guy is there and obviously working for him. They talk about the black bird in sort of an escalating manner. Spade gives Gutman until five o'clock to be in or out. He leaves the hotel smiling. On his way to meet Gutman around five o'clock, Spade runs into the boyish guy. They go up to the fat man's place. Before they enter, Spade sneaks up behind him and gets both of his guns. They talked about the blackbird. Gutman gives Spade an even fuller story, including that the falcon is gold and encrusted with jewels. After being taken by the pirates, it traveled to Sicily, then Paris, where it acquired a black enamel to conceal it. After Paris, the falcon was found by a Greek dealer who understood its value. During the course of this discussion, Spade and Gutman have a drink. Gutman got wind of the Greek dealer's find while he was getting set to obtain the falcon. The dealer's establishment was burglarized. It took Gutman 17 years to trace it to Istanbul, where he sent agents to get it, but they didn't deliver it to him. It is agreed that Spade will present the falcon in a couple of days or for a quarter of a million dollars. After the agreement, Spade realizes that he's been drugged. A few hours later, Spade wakes up and calls his assistant. It turns out that O'Shaughnessy never showed up at her house. Spade tells Effie to go back to the office and wait. Spade finds a newspaper in the hotel room. There is a ship arrival that's been circled. When Spade arrives at the dock, the ship is on fire and he doesn't know who was on it. Spade goes back to his office to meet Effie. A man carrying a parcel staggers in and falls dead. He appears to have gunshot wounds. Spade opens the parcel. It's the Falcon. The phone rings and his assistant answers. O'Shaughnessy is in trouble. Spade takes the Falcon, wrapped back up, and heads out. Effie is to call the police and not mention the parcel. Spade checks the parcel at a bus terminal and puts the ticket in a box. He calls Effie and gives her instructions. O'Shaughnessy meets Spade at his apartment. When they enter, Wilmer, the boyish guy, is behind the door with a gun. Gutman and Cairo are waiting inside the apartment. Gutman presents Spade with $10,000, much lower than they discussed. Spade brings up the, ne the necessity for a fall guy. 
the police will have to have someone to pin all three murders on. Cairo and Gutman are surprised by the number three. Will it be Wilmer, Cairo, or O'Shaughnessy? They proceed in having the second big discussion slash altercation of the movie. It's revealed that Wilmer shot Thursby and started the fire aboard the La Paloma. During the fire, O'Shaughnessy and Captain Jacoby of the La Paloma snuck away to her apartment with the Falcon. Wilmer and Gutman followed them. As Jacoby was trying to leave the apartment with the Falcon via the fire escape, he was shot by Wilmer. In spite of his injuries, Jacoby was able to get away and deliver the Falcon to Spade's office before dying. With everyone still gathered together, Spade calls Effie and tells her to retrieve the Falcon and bring it there. They wait. After Effie delivers the parcel with the Falcon inside, Gutman tears it open and reveals the Falcon. To make sure it's real, he cuts it with a knife. When he realizes it's a fake, he hacks away at it. Gutman suspects a Russian and wants to go to Istanbul to pursue the real thing. Wilmer slips away in the chaos. Gutman asks for his $10,000 back. Spade gives him $9,000 for time and expenses. Gutman leaves. Spade calls the police and tells them that Wilmer committed the murders. This is only to buy time. Spade knows that O'Shaughnessy killed Miles and he expects her to take the fall by going to prison if she doesn't hang. O'Shaughnessy doesn't buy this at first, so Sam reiterates. He explains to her that when your partner is killed, you're supposed to do something about it. The police arrive. Sam gives up O'Shaughnessy and the $1,000 he got from Gutman. One of the detective, detectives asks what the Falcon is. Sam replies, the stuff dreams are made of. Sam takes the Falcon, the fake Falcon, as he watches O'Shaughnessy go down the elevator with the police. Wow, very thorough, very thorough. Oh, okay. Yeah. I hope that yeah. wasn't too bumpy for you. <laughs> Not at all that for nothing. Yeah. Nope, that was the stuff dreams are made of. Stuff. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of City Slickers, too. I kind of figure if there's going to be another quest for a Falcon. Uh, so, this is based on a 1930 novel by Dashiell Hammett? Uh, I think it's Dashiell, yeah. Yeah, Dashiell Hammett. The, one of the interesting things is uh, there's also a 1931 movie as well, I think it is. And so this is a remake, actually. Already in 1941, we have remakes. So, this is clearly the iconic version. I have not seen the other version, but and nor have I read the book, but from what I study on it, this, as well as the 1930s movie, follows closely along with the book, and uh, some things are changed, but more for flow reasons. So uh, that story that Meredith just read off to you is pretty faithful to the book. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. John, do you want to give us a rundown on the cast? So we have Humphrey Bogart playing Samuel Spade, our private eye, who's smooth and uh, very Bogart in this film. That's all that's really needed to be said about him, in my opinion. But Mary Astor plays Bridget O'Shaughnessy, and we'll say she is our damsel in, quote, distress. Uh, she is also the love interest of Spade. Uh, Gladys George plays Iva Archer, who is Miles Archer's, uh, quote, loyal wife. 
Peter Lorre plays Joel Cairo, who's Goodman's partner, partner and face man, and kind of a bumbling one at that. Barton McLean plays Lieutenant Dundee. He seems to know Spade and has a bit of a cooler head of the cops we see. Lee Patrick plays Effie Perrine, who is the secretary for Spade and Archer, and really seems to keep them grounded as well. Sidney Greenstreet makes his film debut as Casper Goodman, also known as the Fat Man, who's kind of the money man and would-be mastermind of the whole plan. Ward Bond plays Detective Tom Paulhouse, who seems to really be jumping to conclusions quickly and does not seem to like Spade too much. Jerome Cowan plays Miles Archer, who is Spade's, uh, let's say, quote, partner. And Alicia Cook Jr. plays Wilmer Cook, uh, kind of a chip-on-his-shoulder goon for the fat man and Cairo. Great. So, Meredith, what do we think about uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, Sam uh, Spade, here? Uh, do you like a hero who's kind of colder, maybe detached, but also fast on his feet and witty and always one step ahead of everybody? What do you think about this character? Well, I, I do like him. It almost seems more realistic for somebody to be like that, you know, that, you know, he's he's looking out for himself like anybody else would. He's he's in it for his own well-being. He kind of wants to help people, but he really just wants to to keep his life going. No, that's that's a good point. And did you have any thoughts on the, uh, the cast there? There's a lot of uh, interesting information out there over time that comes out. But uh, did you have any interesting facts that you wanted to share on the casting? Well, I thought that um, Sydney Greenstreet was pretty funny that he's in this role because the only other thing I've actually seen him in is a movie called Christmas in Connecticut, which is kind of a comedy, drama, lighthearted sort of a thing. So to see him in this was a little bit funny that that same guy is in this, you know, sort of hardened private detective type story. Yeah, as the fat man, no less. Uh, it's, yeah. it, it's interesting that he and Peter Lorre go on to work on nine movies together. So they, they yeah. overlap a lot. Um, yeah, and, and Peter Lorre also was in um, Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So is Green Street. Yeah. Yes, and that was one of the nine. Uh, I can't name them all, but uh, you can look it up for sure. George Raff was actually offered the lead role, going back a little bit to the Sam Spade character, but he rejected it, saying that he did not want to work with an inexperienced director. And if you remember, this is John Huston's first uh, go-round on the movie, so it went to Bogart, and it's hard to imagine anybody else playing the role now. So... Um, Bogart in particular relished the experience of the movie. He said he particularly, uh, he said, quote, it was particularly a masterpiece. I don't uh, have many things I'm proud of, but that's one. Bogart so respected Houston, uh, the Sam Spade character, that he searched for the rest of his career for a script that recaptured the excitement that he found in this film. And uh, he never did. So uh, this is this is his iconic role in his mind, which is hard to believe because he got some pretty heavy duty roles. Yeah. I bet the guy who uh, who turned it down really regretted doing that because uh, of you know what what John Huston came to be. He doubled down later and said he didn't think it was going to be a very significant movie, being that it had already been made. So uh, you know uh, you know one of those things where you try and play it off cool, but uh, I don't know how cool it is to yeah. pass on that. No. 
I, I, it's one of the funny things I remember back to like Will Smith uh, turned down the role of Neo to be in the Matrix and uh, he didn't get the pitch or whatever but uh, it's funny he's uh, he's very humble about it now he's like I didn't get it clearly I should have taken the role I did Wild Wild <laughs> West instead uh, I did not understand it I wish I had understood it <laughs> yeah. yeah well I'm pr- from my understanding, you know, it was also because it's Houston's first directorial film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actors can be pretty wary of rookie directors. Even if you're successful in other aspects of film, directing is a whole different ballgame. So uh, the role of Bridget O'Shaughnessy is also going to be another interesting story. It was originally first offered to 27-year-old uh, Gertilyn Fitzgerald. Uh, but uh, Mary Astor's off-screen notoriety uh, was kind of instrumental in her casting. She had uh, been in several scandals concerning affairs she was involved with uh, during her marriage. Uh, she first came to Hollywood and had an affair with a much older John Barrymore, a mm-hmm. relative of Drew Barrymore, and uh, her husband had been killed in a plane crash, and she had been married multiple times, which back in the 40s, this is not normal. It was considered scandalous behavior at the time. She was also an alcoholic, and she was, during a bitter custody hearing, uh, her diary records were leaked out through a former uh, love interest, and uh, they recounted several various sexual exploits that were made public. So uh, she had a lot of dirty laundry out there in the public, and so in a way, that's kind of fitting for this character. So in a way, that had a lot to do with the casting of this character, which is kind of fitting for a deceitful, uh, unsavory character. And in not only stop there, Mary Astor also had an affair with John Huston during the making of this film. So that might also had a little bit to do with why she got the role. So Yeah, I'd heard that. And yeah, I thought it was kind of fitting for her. But, you know, for some reason, when you see her, you like her which I guess is, you know, the boat that Spade is in for most of the movie. So let's get to the film creation here a little bit. This is John Huston's directorial debut. Meredith, what do we think about John Huston? Pretty pretty acclaimed director in his first go-round. Well, I think that it's very um, difficult to spot that it's his first go-round because everything is so tight and it, it's not very cutty. in in the way that it almost plays out like a play. You often see, you know, more than one of the characters in the shot at the same time, and there's sort of a natural back and forth. So I think he had a great style, and it was not noticeable in in any way, probably to anybody, that it was his first first movie that he directed. No. John, what are your thoughts on John Huston here? I mean, initially for a rookie director, he's it's just fantastic. G- great cast selection, w- wonderful choices of what to shoot, what not to shoot. And uh, kind of as you mentioned before, I-, I haven't seen the previous makings of this story, but uh, it seems like him sticking to the original novel itself really was a wise choice because the other two, I don't even know that I was aware of them until I started researching this film. Uh, and just having a B-movie budget and really not having all the people at Warner on your side with this, uh, he had a few hurdles to jump over and just did a a fantastic job with it. He did. He credited uh, producer Henry Blank, who worked with him on this. Houston recalled that uh, the single greatest piece of advice he would ever receive as a director was shoot each scene as if it was the most important scene in the film. 
And so that's the discipline that he brought throughout this. He apparently ran a very tight ship. Despite the numerous uh, setbacks that you can have, uh, Houston was professional and efficient. Uh, the crew often finished shooting well early and ahead of schedule. There was one day where they had a whole day laid out to shoot a very long scene, and they got it on the first take. And so they went to the golf course and had drinks. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of unheard of. I mean, they this thing just went really smoothly, and it came in two days ahead of schedule and uh, $54,000 under budget, which, again, at that time is no small feat. So pretty good work for a rookie, wouldn't you say, Meredith? Oh, yeah. And, you know, the coming in ahead of schedule and under budget, I guess, rarely happens and probably definitely wouldn't happen now. So, yeah. Yeah, you, gotta you did spend, a great job. You got to spend that money. Yeah. John, did you uh, happen to read uh, about some of the practical jokes that took place in the making of this movie? Um, I, I know that there were a number of pranks that went on along. There was really just one in particular that kind of that I read about because I found it so interesting, and it, it really had to do with with the smoking on set, and uh, it, it really kind of ran along with it. And it actually kind of got Warner upset. And it's interesting because they didn't want people smoking too much. And, you know, today we would think on, on screen that is because it would encourage other, you know, people to start smoking or that it's cool. But really it was they were afraid people would go outside and not watch the film and end up smoking. But so actually they had to stop one of this little continuous smoking that the actors were intentionally doing on screen uh they had to cut it down a little bit but then houston really stepped up and actually said that that was what brought the atmosphere to the film and he wanted it to stay in there but uh apparently particularly peter laurie and humphrey bogart just thought it would be really fun to annoy warner and i i i, I wish i could have you know hung around with those two around i'm sure uh, on and off the set they were both just so much fun together uh, another fun story that uh, they had uh, staged altercations or yelling. And so like people would have like a diva moment and say that I don't have to tolerate this or like you're doing this wrong. And like they would stage an argument and like other people in the production cast would get upset or Houston was like, oh, God, what's happening now? And and then they turned it off and was like, ha ha, we're acting. <laughs> so uh, they sounded like and you can tell in what I mentioned earlier about Bogart really loving the making of this movie this was a tight crew and they had a lot of fun together so and it it uh, it was a success and sometimes when you like the people you work with you're going to get a better product at the end of it i i think it always helps anyway and i mean it, it forged some friendships that some other films might not have happened had this not ha movie not brought some of these people together true meredith any other thoughts on the director there you know there was a particular thing about this movie where the details are sort of danced around and it creates this tension and you don't see that in a lot of other movies. So I like that. I'm not sure if it's specifically because of John Huston or because of the novel, but I, I think that, that that was really great. The dancing around of everything was great. One thing that I noticed here that uh, Roger Ebert claims that some film historians consider the Maltese Falcon to be the first film noir. Now, I'm not that versed in the film noir genre to know who came first and what did what, but 
certainly you would say that this is the hallmark of a film noir movie. What do you think makes a great film noir in your mind, Meredith? I think part of it is the main character, you know, somebody like Sam Spade, who is a good guy, but has his own interests at heart. A lot of the time, I think that's um, pretty common in a noir movie. And also sort of the times of day where everything takes place. Most of it is at night. It's always very shadowy. The light is a big deal in this movie. And there's sort of a seediness to it. And it's like that with all noir movies, that you get the idea that the people your main character has gone in with are not the greatest people in the world. And you kind of want him to get out of there at the end of the movie. So gritty, so, dark, and full of scoundrels, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I and I certainly think this makes uh, makes it up. It I, has that low key lighting. Uh, if you're into mm -hmm. these kinds of effects, where they uh, put a lot of shadows and stuff as well, so and it's pronounced in that black and white medium. So another interesting thing I wanted to point out uh, while we're talking about Houston here is in terms of kind of shifting more into his filming style, they shoot a lot of the moments over characters shoulders so that the audience can see their point of view this is something that i know hitchcock likes to do in first person but this is a little different you see their shoulder you see the back of their head and you see the person talking to them so you kind of get a feel for what they're going through this happens a lot this happens in almost every scene in sam's office this happens in the hotel and it doesn't just do it with sam he's probably the person it happens to the most but i mean it happens with several characters so did you happen to notice this it makes you feel like you're there. It does. It does. And so another interesting thing that I thought was, did you notice how the viewpoint was sometimes low? Uh, I don't know. Why would you think, uh, did you notice this, Meredith? And if you did, why do you think Houston made that choice? Well, I think there are some times when if you're, you know, shooting somebody from a low angle, you kind of want them to look a little bit, villainous or awkward or large um if you shoot them from down they're a little bit diminished so i think there could have been a little bit of symbolism there as far as you know what characters are sort of in power at what point and it changes a lot in the movie so i think that could have been it but it's it's always hard to tell exactly what somebody's after it is hard to tell i but one thing's for sure if you like ceilings there's a lot of ceilings in this because mm -hmm. they shoot from about the navel height you know when people sit down it works a little better but i mean it's it's a noticeable thing it, it's i wondered sometimes if the cameraman was really short uh joking obviously it was a stylistic <laughs> decision but uh it is like yeah, they had a midget shooting it so it's intentionally unsettling yeah that's a good way yeah, yeah. I, say, I think it brings some tension there. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, we talked about on the, the film Home Alone, how they filmed Macaulay Culkin at the beginning of the film from a lower point of view to, I mean, from a higher point of view to make him seem young and immature. And then as the film goes on, they shoot him from a lower point of view to see him more of a, as a responsible adult with power, kind of as Meredith was saying. And it does really come with that kind of feeling here, I think, that, we're seeing some kind of powerful characters that are all kind of looking out for themselves. But I think more than that, I kind of feel like the lower point of view kind of gives us a feel like a feel that as an audience, we're kind of there hiding because, you know, when you hide, you're, you're down low and it, it kind of gives it a little bit of a, 
espionage or kind of some sort of covert feeling. You're almost trying to eavesdrop on the characters in the movie to know what's going on. Exactly. No, I agree with that. One thing I wanted to mention, and this kind of goes back to the question that I was asking Meredith earlier. This this can be true of other older movies, but it's certainly true of this movie. This movie requires you to use your ears. They they are really important to listen to the dialogue. So much of the plot unfolds in what happened previously or uh, reading between the lines of whether the character is lying or telling the truth or not and how Sam picks apart and goes in to find the truth. And he helps basically guide the viewer to come one thing at a time as he uncovers what the Maltese Falcon is, so do you. Um, I just thought it was really interesting. Uh, so much of this movie is not what you actually see, but in through the dialogue. And I wasn't sure how did that shape your experience. Uh, I don't know if, uh, Meredith, you want to take that one first. Well, I thought it sort of strung you along like you you're hanging on every word that somebody says just so you can put it together because that's you know you're after what spades after he wants to put things together um and it's awkwardly realistic that when you hear about uh, an exciting story in your own life you you're not seeing it you're always hearing it from somebody or hearing it on the news so it in a strange way makes it more uh, more intense, you know, every word that somebody says you want to know, and it seems like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Meredith Thor or John, have either one of you seen any other John Huston movies to compare this to? So some, some of them include uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Asphalt Jungle, African Queen, Mo- the original Moulin Rouge, Moby Dick, The Misfits, Freud, Night of the Iguana, The Bible, the uh, 1967 David Niven uh, Casino Royale, and uh, Bloodwise, Prizzoli's Honored, The Dead, and uh, actually Annie from 1982 of all things. So uh, I don't know uh, if you guys have seen any of his other movies. Uh, He's quite an accomplished, long-working director uh, to compare his works to and to see how this early piece might have contributed to his later works. Meredith? Um, well, I have seen um, The Misfits, but I'm more familiar with The African Queen. And that's another movie that, you know, there's a whole lot of dialogue and you have to really pay attention to it because most of the movie is Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn talking on a boat. So it's it's very much like this that you have to really listen to figure out what's happening. Yeah, I find that older movies might be coming out of the play language mm-hmm. where uh they rely heavily on the dialogue and i think that's one of the things that i think sometimes i wonder if hitchcock would have liked this movie because he's he was famous for saying show me don't tell me so uh i don't know what are your thoughts on that john do you do you like to use your ears yes i i do and you know maybe we've become a little too reliant on special effects and kind of eye candy as it were uh but i will say this film it made me happy that I can rewind. Uh, I, I definitely wanted to rewatch a couple scenes because I, I wasn't sure I picked up on everything. As far as the the dialogue in this is, is just great. I, maybe it's the writing. Maybe it's I, I think it's a combination, honestly. But it's really the chemistry of a lot of the actors and actresses on set. Uh, I think that kind of carry it through. But. Really, I think you nailed it on the head when you're saying that you have to have your ears open and ready. You can't be talking to somebody uh, 
you don't want to go see this movie with someone who asks a lot of questions during a movie. I know that's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but I, I made sure I watched this one alone. But I, I just think the dialogue in this was just fantastic. Yeah, I, I and this was the third man that I was watching at Christmas time. Uh, you know, we borrowed it and I uh, showed it to my family. Now my dad was totally into it and enjoying it, but my sister uh, was playing with her phone and was quickly lost and never got back into it. And she thought the movie was boring and because it moved too slow or whatever. But that's just a testament of. Uh, you can't really look away on these old ones. Otherwise, next thing you know, you don't know what they're actually going after. I mean, exactly. So uh, particularly as uh, Mary changes her story uh, at least three or four times. So if you're not on board with that and be like, oh, she's a compulsive liar. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this movie takes place in San Francisco, 1941. We don't get much of a sense of San Francisco Am I wrong, Meredith? Um, I think that you're right, that it's parts of San Francisco that you don't ordinarily associate with it. It's not, you know, the big, open, nice-looking parts. It's the either lavish hotel rooms or kind of, you know, not-so-nice-looking offices. It's, it's not the San Francisco we're used to. No, and perhaps a lot of that's due to the fact that they didn't shoot very much on location. They shot a lot of this in Los Angeles in the studio. A lot mm -hmm. of those hotel rooms and stuff were just constructed, as is so often the case in older movies. I guess they had more control with lighting and sound. They put in some stock shots of the Golden Gate Bridge to start off the movie to let you know you're in San Francisco, but it is not really indicative of where it is. And even some of the outdoor scenes, like uh, the murder scene where uh, his partner is murdered uh, and rolls down a hill. They shot that in Los Angeles, too. So, you know, if they wanted to get you a feel, San Francisco does seem like a really good city to have this mystery in. You know, there's a lot of old architecture and there's a lot of winding streets and hills. And it's it's a crooked town, so to speak. It's warped from the topography and being on the water and stuff. And it seems like a great place to do something like this. And so uh, I think uh, this movie is very well made. But if there was ever a lost opportunity, I didn't think that they necessarily made San Francisco a character in the movie. I don't know. Am I being too harsh on it, John? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I, I've unfortunately never been to, to San Francisco, but, I, you know, I kind of wondered about it. They mentioned some streets because even when he hops in a cab at one point, and I'm just wondering if if these are iconic streets somehow. I, I, I don't know, I've, as I've never been there. But I did find it kind of weird that we have this opening shot, you know, of the iconic bridge there, and then... I really don't have any feel that I'm in San Francisco. And I just kind of chalked it up to the idea that maybe it was just important that it was a port city on the West Coast, you know, that it would be feasible that something from Europe, Asia, Africa, that, that area, and would be shipped to the United States. But I, I think they mentioned Hong Kong is the last port of call for it. Right. I thought, I, I don't know, I associate the film noir style uh, with these trench coats and hats and stuff like that. And you're not going to wear that in Los Angeles because it's, it's hot there or warm there. It's, it's just really nice there, actually. But um, uh, San Francisco, on the other hand, uh, I remember going there uh, when I was a kid and uh, in the middle of summer and being pretty surprised that it wasn't as warm as I thought it would be. From my understanding, it could get pretty chilly. It, it was. And so that chilly tone goes with the shadowy lighting and yeah. you know 
the, again, he wears a coat and you feel cold watching it. The shot that they show us at the beginning of the movie of the bridge is kind of, you know, foggy or misty. Like it's not that great of a day in San Francisco. So I think that the, the lighting of the rest of the movie sort of tied in with that. Speaking of uh, clothing and stuff, uh, what do we think about the uh, 1940s clothes, Meredith? Uh, we got we got some baggy suits and some big hats. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think all the characters, you know, really looked the part. Um, but it was sort of funny that none of them I felt looked quite comfortable. Like what they were wearing was not really them. Everybody's sort of wearing a costume, even though they're in a movie. The people don't seem comfortable. Well, um, funny you should mention that Bokar yeah. actually had to provide his own wardrobe. Yeah, you beat me yeah. to the punch there. Oh, it's, sorry. It's, it's interesting that uh, you, you say that because it's like it, particularly him had to he had to provide his own. Now, the one I would say that he doesn't look comfortable probably is Green Street because mm-hmm. they did have to specifically make his clothes because he was that large. He's big. Yeah. And what Humphrey Bogart did, I don't think, you know, most of the major big Hollywood actors would do today is to find and tailor their own wardrobe. That just seems like something nobody would do now. There would be somebody else in charge of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can just imagine the casting director of like uh, Green Street, uh, like bringing him in. It's like, whoa, I wanted a fat man, but you you really found <laughs> A very fat man. I mean, I, I didn't even know they had guys this fat. Great job, guys. He's got the part. <laughs> he came in with an audition with a with a KFC drumstick in his hand. Um, he's very fat. Anyway, uh, special <laughs> special effects uh, and lighting and uh, props. John, did you have any? Do you want to share any of the information about the gold Maltese Falcons themselves? Interestingly enough, uh, apparently statuettes still exist today from the film and they're now valued at over a million dollars a piece which makes them about some of the most you know pricey film props ever made you know i don't know if it was just like the build-up to seeing the falcon but i was expecting some sort of like really elaborate thing once they kind of took everything down i kind of felt like at the end of indiana jones and the last crusade when the Holy Grail is just like a basic cup. Well, I mean, it, this is actually inspired off the Kippersan Hawk of ceremonial pouring festival that was made in 1697 uh, for George William von Kippershen, uh, Count of the Holy Roman Empire. So it is actually modeled after an old hawk that is perched, perched on the rocks. Uh, so it's actually kind of made from an old, old piece of antiquity. So that's kind of neat. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it is. And I, I honestly would be interested because apparently uh, the original one was dropped by Bogart. And it's you can go to the Warner Brothers uh, uh, studios and to their museum and see it. And the, the tail feathers, are, you can still see them that they're dented from where Bogart dropped it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Here, hold this giant golden prop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, it's, that was real? <laughs> um so, uh, Meredith, what do we think about the soundtrack from Adolf Deutsch? Well, that's a, it's an interesting thing. For most of the movie, I really liked it. But there were a few odd little bits that just seemed too silly. Like when um, 
Sam Spade would smile or laugh or, you know, anything like that. When he gets the guns away from, from Wilmer, there was a little bit of a Andy Griffithness to it. And I, maybe that was in style. I don't know, but there something that just seemed a little off about that. But for the rest of the movie, it was great and it was ominous and it was, you know, suspenseful. Yeah. And I might even say that at some moments it was a little too ominous in the beginning. Like it was just like, Whoa, something really bad's about to happen. Like, well, that's fitting for when his partner gets shot. But, uh, there were some moments of like when somebody walks into an office and they're like, dun, 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 dun. I'm like, Whoa, Whoa. She just walked in the office. Let's find out what's involved here before we go over the top. So it was a little, it came on a little strong for me as well at times. Uh, and I saw the moments that you're talking about as well. So, John, uh, Adolf Deutsch later goes on to win an Academy Award for his uh, com- composition. What do you think about him here? Well, I, I agree that sometimes it seemed a little campy, as it were. Mm-hmm. But I, I did just kind of try to chalk it up to the ideas that maybe it's just in style, as Meredith was saying, and that at the time that was really what to do. And I did think of, I guess I didn't think of Andy Griffith. I started thinking to older movies and that sometimes did, did happen, but a lot of times, uh, yeah, it, it really increased the tension. Um, honestly, a lot of times I wish that I could cut off the music so I could make sure I could hear any dialogue that was happening. But for the most part, I, I really did think it increased that kind of ominous feeling you all were talking about. And I, I assumed that was what they were going for in this being, you know, kind of a noir film, but I did feel like sometimes I'm like, okay, it's, I, I, I get the, get the picture guys. Something shady is happening. It's time for look for this. Meredith, do you have any fun facts that you want to share that we haven't covered yet? It's sort of going back to, um, the existing figurines of the Falcon. Um, I read an article online that in 2013, one of them sold at auction for $4 million. Ooh. So, that's kind of, you know, if you think about in the movie how much value this, you know, uh, falcon from the Knights Templar, how much it's placed on it, like a half million dollars for something that would be in antiquity to four million for something that's, you know, made out of resin and it's only worth this much because it was in a movie. It's It just seems crazy that somebody would, would go after it. I'm you assuming know, it's made out of gold, seriously. right? For that much no. money? No. Really? No. I think it's uh, some kind of resin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Uh, they at least ought to dip it in gold for $4 million. I don't know. Jeez. Uh... No, it's it's black. <laughs> John, look for this. What do you got? You, you know, we kind of already mentioned uh, one on my head is that Green Street, I, I was just going to say he's 357 pounds, but they did have to make his... Uh, own costumes but something i found interesting is uh, i love casablanca which came out the next year and ingrid bergman apparently watched this film repeatedly to study humphrey bogart and his technique interesting i have one where it says warner brothers plan to change the name of the film to the gent from frisco which is a horrible name uh because the <laughs> novel's title had already been taken by the 1931 maltese falcon and the studio eventually agreed to keep the original title at john houston's insistence and i'm glad he insisted it because i don't think anybody's paying four million dollars from a uh, prop from uh the gent from frisco meredith yeah. no it just doesn't it doesn't make sense uh do you have another any other look for this 
Um, well, there was something I noticed on uh, Sam Spade's desk, and it was a weird cigarette lighter that almost was like the shape of a tic-tac box. And he pushed a button on top, and the flame came out the top. It was, it was just a, a strange and interesting-looking little thing, and I really couldn't find much, you know, information on that. But it was, it was a neat little thing. They smoked a lot well, in this movie, so they're looking well, for new ways to smoke. So, actually, if you'd like to know, I, I do have some information on that. I, I that okay. was one of my deeper look for this, but I can add to that. So. That, that was a Ronson touch-tip table model made by the Ronson Company uh, between 1935 and 51, and it is a classic example of the Art Deco style that dominated the area. Uh, and they're so sought, out, so, like, sought out these days. They're really hard to find, but there's, mm -hmm. like, there are companies that literally just look for these lighters and try to restore them to original working condition. Yeah, wow. it was a very artistic-looking little thing. It was. So uh, I have one more. For, uh, for decades, this film could not legally be shown on U.S. TV stations because of its underlying suggestions mm -hmm. for illicit sexual activity, uh, i.e. O'Shaughnessy's promiscuity. But also, uh, it, and I did not pick up on this, but uh, Joel Cairo's character was a, uh, a homosexual. And I guess the fact that he had a fragrant uh, handkerchief and was just small in general and somewhat effeminate, uh, th that was done pretty subtle. Uh, back then, you just couldn't say, uh, this guy's gay. It was so, I guess, repugnant to people at the time that they couldn't deal with it. It shows you how much times have changed. Uh, but uh, just that's interesting that that would rub somebody the wrong way so hard. Uh, not everything was great back then. So do you want to take a, any other last ones? Yeah, actually, I got, I got a couple I'd like to throw. One actually kind of referenced what you were saying before. When it was taken into the film registry in 1989, that was the inaugural year of the film registry. So it was one of the first films taken in. Mm -hmm. um, so Warner Brothers decided to produce a sequel because this movie was so successful. Director John Huston wrote a script for that sequel, and it was titled The Three Strangers. And the film was supposed to contain many of the primary characters uh, from the first film, including Sam Spade. Uh, before the film reached production, however, uh, DeShiel Hammett informed Warner Brothers that he owned the rights to all the characters, and even though the studio had purchased the rights of the novel, they did not actually own the rights to the characters. So in 1946, the Three Strangers film was actually made, and it did feature Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet. Uh, they both appeared in the Maltese Falcon, uh, no Bogar, and it uh, wasn't necessarily called the Maltese Falcon 2. So still happened. Uh, it's out there, but it's not necessarily a clear-cut, dry sequel. But also one that the only scene that didn't involve Spade was the killing of, of Archer, and that was only put in at the studio's insistence. Uh, one that uh, you mentioned to me off screen, but I just got to bring it up. I like the fact that Mary Astor was chased around the studio by uh, John Huston to get her out of breath and get her nervous and anxious so that she would be uh, kind of high strung for her scenes, which she is. It was a very good technique. Although if they're having an affair during the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, huh, yeah, it's, a little bit that. it's like, why are you out of breath? No, no reason. You're sweating. I was watching cops. <laughs> so, uh, Meredith, how does this movie affect you when you watch it? Does it, where does it take you? I think it takes me to some place that 
you wish you would never have to go. Like you, you don't want to be accused of murder or think that, you know, if you don't figure this thing out, somebody's going to shoot you or something like that. So um, it, it allows you to explore those things without really being in any kind of physical danger. So, so it's good, but it's a place you don't want to be. John, how does this one make you feel? Actually, it just kind of elaborates on that. It's something like you really don't want to be. I mean, clearly in the film, Spade is, and Bogart does it wonderfully, he, he seems to be a step ahead of everybody. And it seems it's pretty easy to get in and over your head in something like this. And it seems at times that even he is, you know, a, a, about to be, but he always seems to, to pull himself out of it with uh, s some sort of scheme that he has. But it just kind of reminds me of, yeah, this is a situation that, and I think he kind of figures it out by the end. Like, he doesn't want anything to do with it. It's like that, that falcon maybe is something that dreams are made of, but it's also something that bad things are made of, like bad dreams. For me, uh, at a more personal level, kind of what Meredith was talking about, uh, I kind of see some of these scenes where Sam thinks quickly on his feet to make the scene in his apartment, like when Joe pulls a gun on him. And then uh, he gets assaulted and gets hit in the head and he's bleeding. And the detectives are like, hey, what's going on here? It kind of reminds me, there have been some more than one time, really, where I was in school and, you know, either you were starting to get into an altercation or something bad was happening. And the teacher kind of comes up and is like, hey, what's going on here? And then you think quick on your feet and you come up with something that's completely not what happened and is far more convincing than what Sam Spade has going on, or at least it is in my mind. And uh, even if uh, something bad did happen to me, you kind of tell them, it's, oh, it's okay, it's fine, I'm fine, he's fine, you're fine, aren't you? And, and you all kind of work, shake it off. In a weird way, you kind of cover for people who you don't even particularly like uh, so that if you do tell on them, uh, they're just going to make life hell for you later. So in a weird way, you have to be like, no, 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 he's not giving me a hard time. He's fine. He's fine. And uh, in a weird way, uh, you'll benefit more from excusing the bad behavior later. Yeah. So I don't know if either of you have ever been in that moment, but that's kind of how it made me feel where it's just like, I could totally get this guy in trouble, but it's just going to be worse for me later. So, Well, I, I, that kind of reminds me of the part where P Peter Laurie is saying, it's like, I felt ridiculous telling that story. And he's just like, well, the the truth would have gotten us in a lot more trouble, in essence, what he said. And it's just like, well, that's true. It's like, because it was kind of a ridiculous story. It's like, how'd you cut your head? Stuff like that. It, and But I have been in that situation where, yes, it's like, uh, there's someone that clearly they know, maybe a teacher, an adult, they know what's going on. But as long as you don't say anything, things might be easier that way. I'm sure you and your older brother had to do this with your parents a couple of times, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's time for my favorite part of the show, the superlatives. Meredith, who would you give your MVP? Well, actually, my MVP is not a person. It's the lighting. And I thought that was it was a great thing that even if you, you know, in later years forget what happened in the movie, you remember how it looked. That's an excellent point. And way to call that out, too. John, MVP. Might be just a little bit of bias here, but I I have to go with Bogart. I was very tempted to go with Houston, but I think he just really brings along the movie. And it's interesting because I can see so many similarities between his character in this and Rick and Casablanca. Like this person that 
kind of seems like they're just only in it for themselves and everything. But in the end, does something a little differently than you think. Uh, he just really brings the presence on screen. He's an imposing figure in this. I'm going to go with Bogar as well. Uh, Meredith, best supporting actor. I think Peter Lorre was the best supporting actor. He um, he added a lot to the movie that you didn't expect. And, you know, he he's kind of more of a strong character than you expect in the movie. You know, he's frequently pulling guns and, you know, demanding to have things happen. And you, you just don't expect that from him. So I thought he was great. Yeah, I love that scene where he's like, yeah, can I have my gun back now? Yeah. And then he pulls it on him and he's like, I'd like to search your office. Well, certainly, yeah. John, uh, who's your support, uh, well, supporting actor? Well, I'm glad you, you said Laurie because it was really hard for me to decide between him and Green, Sidney Greenstreet. And I went with Greenstreet after reading that this was his first film and that his introductory scene, he nailed it on the first try. They didn't even have to reshoot it for him. And I, I thought his dialogue with uh, Bogart was just wonderful. I was torn between these two, and I did go Green Street because he so much of the advancing of the plot lies in his hands. But I really like Laurie as well. So it, I don't think this, you can go wrong on either pick. They're both fantastic choices. Hidden Gem, Meredith? Um, so I thought the Hidden Gem was Sam Spade's assistant, Effie. Um, she was just more real than the other characters. It almost seemed like, you know, everybody was playing a part, but she really was who she was. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John, who's your hidden gem? We have potential for a sweep here. I also have to go with Lee Patrick as Effie. Uh, I, I thought she was the only one that kind of tethered uh, Spade back to, to Earth or kind of knew what he was up to kind of grounded him a little bit uh well i'm actually gonna go with ward bond on this one he is the person who plays the more good-natured detective and he's good-natured and but at the same time he does seem a little bit slow maybe two steps behind uh good old sam here and uh i don't know why but I, maybe it's just because he plays bert from it's a wonderful life as well and so i i, I recognized his face from that i i definitely like that I was like, Bert, 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 I know you, Bert. Hey, where do you get off calling me Bert? I don't know you. Meredith, best shot. So this is kind of, you know, visually and sort of emotionally what the characters are doing. But it's the scene where O'Shaughnessy kicks Cairo in the leg. And there's a there's a big uproar. And, you know, every all the actors are really on their game. And the police just say, you know, that's no way to act. Um, but it's just, it was so shocking. You just didn't think the scene was going to go that way. No, she was feisty. Yeah. Uh, John, uh, best shot. Actually, for me, it was the opening of the film. Uh, maybe it's because I've never been to, to San Francisco, but so often uh, when I see pictures of like the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, uh, it's nice. They're nice days and everything. And as Meredith mentioned before, it's like, it's not a nice day. And I really thought it set the stage for the film well i'm gonna go with the fact that uh sam is getting tailed by wilmer early in the or earlier he we're not really sure who wilmer is yet and so we see this figure following him through a crowd and it's a smooth transition as he knows he's being tailed and particularly this is before he hails the cab uh, on the street we see 
uh, we see Wilmer behind him and we see his face in the forefront and you know he's being followed and there's a real sense of danger here. And I just think that it's shot outside at night and this is, a lot of these shots are studio, very controlled. I thought this one was something special and I I liked it and I wanted a little more of this kind of thing. So uh, I'm going to call out that. I, I have to say though there in that Wilmer was awful at walking behind him. He really was <laughs> looking straight down, bumping into people. I was like, way to stay real incognito there, buddy. Well, he takes his guns from him at one point. So, I mean, <laughs> yes. yeah, he's not very good at his job. <laughs> no, he isn't. But I love him like a son. <laughs> okay. We can turn him in. <laughs> best scene, Meredith. Um, so I thought the best scene was when Effie brings the Falcon back to the apartment and, you know, Gutman's tearing it open and then he knifes it and then he keeps hacking away at it with the knife. It's just like, you know, we've built up to this moment and then he's just so mad that he's tearing it all apart. Um, yeah, I thought that was the best scene. Don't tear that apart. It's worth $4 million. John, uh, best scene. Well, th this might go back to my actor's superlatives, but it's actually when... Goodman uh, and Spade meet for the first time. Uh, I just think the chemistry be between them is wonderful. And there's a reason he and Green Street went on to go on to so many films. But uh, the dialogue was great. And then even the, the, the fake temper tantrum and Bogart's smile on his face when he leaves. Uh, th that, that was just my favorite scene. I, I actually went back and watched that a, a few more times just because I liked it so much. For me, and it's just a fun scene, I, I, like I said, I like Laurie so much, uh, the Sam meeting Joe Cairo for the first time in his office. I love this scene. Too. I already told you about like the smelling of the handkerchief, the taking of his gun, giving it back to him, and him pointing it right back at him again. I, I love the dynamics in here. and This is my Look, favorite scene of the movie. And that, that one in particular, Laurie's facial expressions are just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so change one thing, Meredith. If I could change one thing, I think it would be the silly bits of the music. I like everything else, but the ones that are a little too, um, like, sitcom-y, I would change. Mm -hmm. John, what would you change? A actually, she kind of beat me to that one. Uh, I was going to say, to tone down the music. The, the dialogue's carrying us through there. Uh, I mean, it's very good at certain points, but maybe it's just and being from a, a different time period, it, it seemed a little over to the top for, uh, for me, as we mentioned before. I would say one thing I would like to change is Sam's love life. His relationship with Iva seems very incomplete. She's jealous over him, and it causes a conflict in the movie. But I want them to be a little more defined. Like, is this somebody he's actually interested in? It's a lot more interesting if it is, because his partner was, uh, you know, her husband. And so that, that's going to implicate him and make things a lot stickier. And uh, they kind of imply that he doesn't really care about her anymore, that that might have been a fling. Uh, but it was implied that also that it was ongoing. It's all very murky there. And I'm sure in the 1940s, some of this is considered unsavory at the time. But I think there's an opportunity to add some interest between those characters amidst all of what's going on here. So uh, I don't know. Uh, he also goes on to kiss Mary awfully fast, like... He's like, well, I can't pay you anymore. What else are you going to want? And he like power kisses her. I would just say Sam's 
very strange with his affections in this movie. So I don't know. And maybe that's just what a 1940s man ought to be. But uh, it, it, well, I think uh, that's part of the, the noir aspect of things that a lot of the time the hero falls for the wrong girl repeatedly. Okay, that could be. Well, I, I, I think in it, though, they kind of showed it when she asked, did, did you kill him? You know, and he's, you know, just absolutely not. But he knows that they can't see each other anymore at all. If people suspected that, I mean, they would that would be motive completely right there. Mm. Yeah, well, maybe if they had spelled that out for me better, I don't know. But uh, you're right. You're, you're both possibly right on that. So it made it a little hard to like Sam completely because of that. So uh, best quote, Meredith. Um, I think it's it's from Spade when he tells Cairo, you know, when when you're slapped, you'll take it and you, you'll like it. <laughs> I like I that. just thought that was hysterical. Yeah. John. Yeah, that that, that was a, a pretty great one. Uh, actually, you know, a lot of people want to go with really the last line of the movie on this. But w- what I really liked was toward the beginning, it's a. We didn't exactly, when Spade says, we didn't exactly believe your story, Miss Wonderly. We believed your $200. I mean, you paid us more than if you'd been telling us the truth and enough more to make it all right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, t- to me, it was like, it was kind of funny, but it was also just like, he was showing his true colors as a PI right there. Like, hey, I'm not, I'm not a Boy Scout. I like the, uh, so none of us are going to go with the iconic, the stuff dreams are made of line here. Uh, I'm. I couldn't uh, be fonder of you if you were my own son. But well, if you lose a son, it's possible to get another. There's only one Maltese Falcon. So this was a line from Casper Gutman as he was willing to give Wilmer up in order to get the prized Maltese Falcon. So I love that line. Yeah. Uh, so instead of doing our normal recast, uh, this is an older movie. I thought it'd be fun to go around and share who you would put in this movie today so meredith instead of humphrey bogar who would you cast as samuel spade um i would go with ethan hawk uh just because i think he does pretty well the um sort of half concealing his emotions and i think humphrey bogart also does that well Mm, john um you know i i think maybe a little bit younger version of but i I was kind of thinking george clooney a little bit just it can kind of play that smooth character good with ladies hmm i'm more with meredith on this one but i actually wrote uh down james franco for this one okay uh that's a tough one to recast about him but i i almost thought that he was maybe too lighthearted, but maybe not i actually like that i i could see him doing the 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 scene where he gets upset very well (laughs) and then uh, the wild, the erratic changes in mood. So I don't know. Uh, Mary Astor, uh, character, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Meredith, who would you put in that role? I would put Diane Kruger in that role. Oh, I like it. Okay. Yeah, we just covered her last week in the Mr. Nobody episode. John? I actually, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've seen her some of her movies more recently. But I, I kind of like Emily Blunt for this role. Mm, that's not a bad pick. I went with Kate Winslet. Oh, that's yeah. a good one too. Uh, stuff. It is, and I, I, I like. There's some good picks on that one. Uh, so, Iva Archer. This is who he has his affair with. Okay. Sam Spade has his affair with. Meredith, who are you going with 
for the uh, other love interest of Sam Spade here? So I would go with um, Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. Okay. So we know her from 12 Years a Slave. And what else would we know her from? Um, American Horror Story and Glass, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Okay. Okay. John, who who would you go with uh, for Iva? Well, this is going to sound weird, but interestingly enough, Sarah Pauly, who we also talked about in uh, Mr. Nobody. Wow, we have two of the three women from uh, Mr. Nobody coming back this week. So uh, we'll have to see if the third one comes up at some point. But uh, for me, I went with Allie Larder. Uh, I don't know why. I'm I'm fond of her, and I think that there should be some degree of appeal for Sam to want to go off with her. So uh, I, I could see her being the other woman quite well so um oh is she from heroes uh yes i believe so john is that right on heroes she's definitely Uh, from final destination is where i know yes she's on heroes she plays twins in it i believe final destination obsessed uh, uh legally blonde yeah so uh who would you get we both we all loved uh uh cairo so much but uh, we have to replace Peter Laurie with somebody in modern day times. Meredith, who do you replace him with? Um, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his first name, but it's either Rami or Rami Malik, who was just in um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, I like it. That's a great pick. Good actor, too. Uh, I think it's Rami, but I could be wrong. Okay. So, uh, John. Uh, and it could be just because I've loved this man ever since I first saw him in the movie Galaxy Quest when I was younger. But um, I'd like to see his, the range of Sam Rockwell in this role, hmm. if I had to recast it. Another good, uh, another good actor. Uh, I I picked up on the eccentricities and the strange-looking big eyes of Peter Lorre, and uh, I went to Steve Buscemi on this one. So. Um, yeah, that that's that's a good one. So Effie Perrine, the secretary of Sam Spade, who would you put in this role, Meredith? So I would I would pick Deborah Ann Wool. And we would know her from Daredevil, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, from Daredevil and I think True Blood. That's right. Uh, she pretty much plays the same role. I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on that one. I, that was my pick too. Uh, she she plays uh, the same role in Daredevil and she keeps Matt Murdock grounded and uh, keeps everything on the rail so it's it's it fits like a glove for her so uh john it does does. uh john who would you get in the role of effie perrine uh i actually like the idea of uh nicole kidman in this role um i think she's really uh turned into an actress that could play a secondary role like this and would do it well hmm interesting I don't know. Yeah, okay. I'm having a hard time seeing that one. But uh, uh, Meredith, who would you go with for uh, Elijah Cook Jr. played Wilmer? And for our last one, who would you get to play Wilmer this time around? For Wilmer, I think I would go with Giovanni Brisby. I don't know if you know, but he was um, Phoebe's brother on Friends. He was also in Avatar. Oh, Giov- uh, yeah, Giovanni mm-hmm. Ribisi. Yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's also in uh, That Thing You Do. Saving Private Ryan. Uh, yeah. Million Ways to Die in the West. He's all, yeah, he, yeah, great character, great supporting actor. I really like that pick. I might like it better than mine now. Uh, John. Well, this could be because uh, we just did a movie with him in it recently, but it's cheating a little bit because I have one a younger version, but 
Wilmer had seemed to have this really big inferiority complex. And so I think like a young Joe Pesci would have been great for this. Huh. Uh, oh, just, yeah. Like a, a little almost like pre Goodfellas. Like, okay. Just someone who seems to have a chip on their shoulder. I'm going to go with Colton Lee Hayes. Uh, if you're not familiar with the uh, show Arrow, he plays uh, Arsenal uh, in Arrow. He is a young, he's strong, but I can get inexperienced and perhaps prone to making mistakes off of him. And in the TV show, uh, he kind of has this sidekick nature. And yes, he's inexperienced and has a prone tendency to you know, get in over his head and so I could see uh, Sam Spade uh, taking his guns away from him and then yeah. handing them back to him because, uh, you know, Oliver Queen, to some degree, does that <laughs> in the show Arrow. So that's that's my pick on that one. So uh, Meredith, do you want to plug your uh, your artwork on Society6? Um, yeah, so it's uh, Meredith. It's Society6.com slash Meredith Gray Robson. And there's all kinds of uh, artwork on there. And now there's um, travel mugs and coasters and art prints and things like that. Yes. And if we didn't mention it earlier, it is she is the creator of the show's logo. So we always appreciate that. So every time I download it, I always sit there and I see uh, Meredith's logo and I say, all right, we look good because <laughs> of you. So thank you so much for Thanks. that. What would you uh, rate this movie? Uh, five star scale. And does it hold up, Meredith? I would give it five stars. Uh, the music for me wasn't quite right, but I don't feel like that's enough to not give it a full five stars. So it's a great movie. John, five star scale. What do you give it? Five out of five. I just think all around, uh, technically, acting, everything was just wonderful. I, I loved the film. I really enjoyed it. And because it's my first go round, I might not enjoy it as much as you guys i had it at 4.5 which is still really strong but like i said there's a little part of sam that i couldn't quite attach myself onto and i thought there was uh some of the texture of the movie would have been fun to immerse yourself in san francisco a little more um i'll, I'll throw another movie out there that did that really well bullet which was made several years later that movie just san francisco is a big part of the movie and i think that that would make the movie even stronger so just liking the hero a little more. I want to reemphasize this movie's really great. It moves extremely well for an old movie. It, mm -hmm. If anybody who says old movies are slow or dull or boring, then you either were looking at your phone and you weren't listening as we were talking about earlier because this is an exciting movie. I see why AFI put it on their top thrills list. So it, I think it does hold up. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah. yeah. So... We've come time to pick our movie for next time, John. Are you ready? I've got three options for you. I am ready. All right. So next time, we're going to do kind of a comparison, uh, remakes versus originals. And so uh, with this, we're gonna, I'm going to give you the remake years on this one, but uh, we can either do option one, Sleuth, starring Jude Law and Michael Caine uh, in 2007. It's a remake of the 1970s uh, version. And it is on a sprawling country estate, an aging writer matches wits with a struggling actor who has stolen his wife's heart. Option two, The In-Laws. Very funny original movie. And, but we're looking at the 2003 remake in this case with Michael Douglas. We have right before his daughter's wedding, a mild-mannered foot doctor discovers his future son-in-law's father is a freewheeling international spy. 
And then option three, War of the Worlds. So we have the Orson Welles original, and as well as the 2005 Tom Cruise War of the Worlds. Uh, this is as Earth is being invaded by an alien tripod fighting machines. One family fights for survival. So sleuth, in-laws, or War of the Worlds. John. Uh, well, some interesting picks there. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with the one I haven't seen, the only one that I haven't seen either, uh, the original or the remake, which is Sleuth. It's really going to be an interesting one because not only does Michael Caine in the new movie, but he, and he plays the younger role in the older movie. So it's Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine in the original, and then it's Jude Law and Michael Caine in the remake. So that's going to be a fun one to get into with you next week. So Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So... Thank you so much, Meredith, for coming on the show. You're one yeah, of our favorite guests you. to come on. You got it. You got the show going. You made a, you make us look good. So thank you so much for bringing your insights. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. As always, thank you everybody for listening. We invite you to reach out to us. Please give us a like on Facebook. Where our like numbers are going up. Subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. And email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. If you want to come on the show, if you're a fan of the show, uh, let us know. We want to know how we can make the show better. And we're always looking to grow our community. So, uh, as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. John? Have to go with Bogart on this one. Uh, a hot dog at the ball game beats roast beef at the Ritz.